Welcome to another Wednesday night. This is our second to last night uh, of the semester, so next Wednesday will be our final one. We are going to finish up Titus tonight. Um, we're going to go all the way through chapter 3 of, uh, of Paul's letter to his good friend Titus over there in Crete, and then next week Jib will be back to do a wrap-up of all three of the uh, uh, of the pastoral epistles. And so it, it, I'm sure you've noticed that there are a lot of similar themes that tumble over these. If you continue to write encouraging notes to um, pastors working out on the frontier um, of the Mediterranean, you probably have a lot of similar issues to discuss. So, um, and, and in particular, there's a lot of similarity between Titus and First Timothy, and then Second Timothy is a bit of its own animal. But uh, next week, we will try to tie it all together, and I am um, unsure what we plan to do in the fall, um, hmm? but I think, uh, I mean, I'd be shocked if Jim doesn't have an idea, right? He's always got something he wants to do. So, we're going to be in Titus 3, verses 1 all the way to the end in verse 15, um, this is a, a fascinating passage, series of paragraphs that um, he has a bit of some of his, his, his normal stuff, the way that he concludes letters at the end with a final charge or exhortation and then greetings that he's sending to all of his um, acquaintances at that church or, or whoever are connected to its recipient, to, to Titus. Um, but the first bit of chapter three is wonderfully fascinating. Um, Titus's, the, the letter to Titus has been, um, if, if you've paid attention to the first two chapters and you'll see it more here in the final chapter, it is, it is a, a letter where Paul is obsessed with Christian behavior. He's just obsessed with it. And because it's in the Bible, we, we don't, I think we give him a pass. But I wonder if we, if we spoke to one another or if we, if we challenged those who are outside of the faith to, to enter the faith and then live like this today, I wonder if it just smacks of legalism. Are we, um, if we talk like Paul does in this letter, are we borderline Pharisees? Are we the morality police? Do we... Um, do we become obsessed with behavior modification? And I don't know about you guys, but I have grown up. Um, I, I didn't grow up in, in the most faithful way to the church, but I've always grown up um, in it. So I was, I was sitting in the pews, not necessarily living out like one ought to when they sit in the pews. But I, my grandfather's a pastor. I spent many years going to his little church in Uluga, Oklahoma. And, uh, and then whenever I wasn't close enough to do that, I was in other churches. And, and one of the themes that in my small mind I was able to grasp was that we just don't want to be legalists. That is such a bad thing. For us to demand, you know the Bible sometimes talks about behavior as if it should be perf like perfect? It's, it's almost like holiness is a real thing. And, and, we, and sometimes when we talk like that, you know, you could offend someone. You don't know what they're struggling with. How, who are you to place such heavy burdens on someone? Ryan, everyone, everyone makes mistakes. Now, I loved that logic when I was growing up. Loved it. Paul just doesn't really seem to be a fan of that way of thinking. It's like it never enters his mind that we should soften the edges of our ethic to, to accommodate those who find it difficult. Paul really doesn't care if you find it difficult. He just says, this is what we do. A lot of times I think that I, I, at least I, and maybe this is just Ryan who can't think clearly and can't discern what's being taught to him as a, as a youth, but I thought that um, what we loved to lift up over and against the Christian behavior was the compassion of Christ, the love that we find in the church, the endless grace and patience 
that brothers and sisters ought to have with one another because after all, God has such grace and patience for you. And so we would, um, you could either go down the, the strict ethic and just modify behavior, but if that's a bit distasteful, let's go over here and just talk about our beliefs and some of these virtues that we have that are a little nebulous and hard to define. And it made sense to me. It made sense to me. Which is more winsome, telling people that you love them unconditionally or telling them that they need to stop doing what they're doing? It's easier to catch more flies with this one. It's just that in examples like Titus 3, and Titus 3 is far from the only example, but in passages like this, Paul would never separate the two. In fact, he said that they exist because of one another, for one another's sake. The theology, the doctrine, is only true because the ethic is what proves that it's true. And you live this way because that's true. It's, it's almost like they're woven together and you can't separate them. Paul stacks them in his, in his letters. He says, you should live like this. Well, why, Paul? Well, because we believe this. Oh, okay. And because we believe this, you should live like this. And because you live like this, it's easier for people to believe this. He won't let you separate them. So let's look then and see what is it he asks um, Titus to, um, to encourage the church in Crete, to, I think, in many ways, enforce in the church in Crete, to teach, to challenge, to demand, and then you'll see later on to discipline when these demands aren't met. What's he ask people to do? He starts out in verse one. Remind them. Remind them. It's, it's uh, interesting how much of Paul's instructional letters, his, his pastoral correspondence, is just unoriginal. Hey, remember? Hey, can I just put this, let me just take this old truth and put it back in the center? Do you remember what Christ did for you, right? It's reminder language. This is what Moses did in Deuteronomy. And, and uh, if you look at Paul's tendency in this regard to remind people of the core truths of the faith and to remind them to live as though they, as they were taught, um, it should make us very suspicious of, of um, originality and novelty when it comes to thinking about these things. Because Paul, again, he's, by this point in his ministry, he's run out of all the new stuff. Says, hey, Titus, remind them what they already know. Remind them what already happened to them. Remind them of the basic truths of the faith. Remind them who Jesus is and what he did for them. And then remind them of the implications of that truth. Remind them that they should be gentle and kind and loving. Remind them that they were saved by grace through faith. It's like, really, Paul, that's all you got? And he's like, that's all I need. That is literally all I need. Just keep reminding them. Because the funny thing about people is they have this incredible ability to keep forgetting. So just remind them. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient and to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. He said, this is, this is, I wrote the word above there, this is your duty. And he's going to justify that here in a second. But he says, this is what we do. We submit to our authorities. If you want to get a different writer's perspective, go to 1 Peter. But I want to go to Romans 13. And hear Paul elaborate on this idea. To be submissive to rulers and authorities um, if you think that um, if you think that political corruption is new, it certainly isn't. And writing when he did, it may have been a more scandalous claim than it would be now to just submit. But this is what Paul said um, in his letter to the church in Rome. Let that, let that church's location sink in for a second. In the church in Rome, where 
there is a certain man and a certain organization that is very powerful named Caesar and everyone who props him up. And he wasn't all that kind to this particular faith. In fact, by the time the letter to the Romans had been written, the Christians had already been blamed for a citywide fire and expelled and persecuted because he just needed a scapegoat. And he wanted to set the fire, so he did. Blame the Christians and the Jews. And it's to those people who have, who have come back into Rome and are certainly a little paranoid about their um, meager existence in the shadow of this great empire. This is what Paul writes to them. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For better of this you also, or for because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pray to all what is uh, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now, you know all of the corruption that goes on in this particular location, and you certainly have some thoughts about any corruption that we have to deal with today. And this sounds like it's just head in the sand nonsense. But Paul never really comments on the character. He just says you do it because of their office. And by the way, Paul is very okay with conscientious, uh, conscientious objection should, uh, should submission to the authorities uh, include sinning against the creator. There is obviously a, a hierarchy there. But Paul never, never really asked the question, do you agree with them? He just says, you submit. This is what we do. And he doesn't even say you submit because that is how good, healthy societies are built. He said, that's just how it is. This is what we do. And he's not interested in doing it because it's effective. He's interested in doing it because it says something about us. And it says something about what we believe. Because if we're submissive to rulers and authority, if we are submissive in an obedient way, and we are ready for every good work. Galatians 6.10 talks about doing good works, especially for those of the household of faith. Especially for those of the household of faith. Paul in, in Galatians 6 is quite interested in caring for the family. We do good for one another. But back in Titus 2, just last week, He says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He says we, we are ready for good works both in the church and I think for the benefit of the world and, uh, and we do this speaking evil of no one. We aren't quarrelsome. It's a... Uh, uh, if you go to, to, to Romans 12, it, it, it's a little bit like it's describing this um, uh, sweet agreement, this very winsome ability to just get along with people. Paul will never ask us to compromise convictions, but he will say set aside differences, doing so in a gentle way. And much like the example set in Philippians 2 with Paul, with um, Timothy, with Epaphroditus, and with Jesus. These wonderful examples of getting lower. It's a race to the bottom. 
It is seeing who can serve one another, show perfect courtesy toward all people. So this is, this is Paul saying, this is what we do, okay? And then in your, on your notes, I, I outlined in black the, the negative sections of the letter, where, he will, where he'll compare what is good and what is right with what is, what is wrong. Now look at what he says when he describes what we used to be like. What we used to be like. Now, this is going to help us. Paul is about to launch into what I believe is a bit of an ancient creed, maybe even a small hymn or poem, because it's just so highly structured and methodical and orderly, and it's one, uh, verses four through seven are one long-winded, typically Pauline sentence. Um, and he's going to tell us in this creed, maybe even like a confessional statement of, of, of um, commonly held doctrine, He's going to tell us some incredible truths about salvation. And so, um, so we can kind of keep track of them. I want us to, to make a little bit of a matrix here. He describes salvation in a very, um, probably a more rich way than maybe we do at times. Um, some of you, I can see, have been uh, recent attendees in our new Membership Matters class. For, um, for a long time, our, to, to join Sunnybrook, you didn't really, we didn't have what, like a formal membership class. We had a process, but it didn't involve um, a bunch of classes. And for the last year, almost a year, we've had this new class where in order to kind of go through the process of becoming a member at Sunnybrook, you, um, you come six weeks in a row to an hour-long class where we will teach on various uh, basic ideas that we believe here at the church and what it means to be a member. We'll define it. We'll say, talk about expectations of members, what members can expect of staff and elders, core doctrines, church history, you name it. Whatever you need to kind of be your basic foundation for a fully functioning member at Sunnybrook. Brook, that's what membership matters is. And we do it twice a year. Uh, we did it three times this year just to kind of get the ball rolling, but we'll do it in the fall and in the spring. Uh, and one of the classes we have there is we talk about the gospel. And after we talk about the gospel, uh, the following several classes are the doctrines of the Trinity, the doctrines of salvation, the doctrines of the church, the doctrines of end times, the, all these things. But it's the gospel one that I think, and I, I help teach it, but Drew Moss teaches one particular section on that class that it just blows me away every time I hear it. And I think that it is, it is an incredible truth, a delightful truth for, for new people to come in here. What is the gospel? It's worth your time to go through all six weeks to hear Drew Moss talk about just the gospel for 45 minutes. And... And he articulates the fact that the gospel is quite simply, we talked about this last week. According to Romans 1, it is the gospel of God, which is the good news concerning his son. And we often, I think, uh, accidentally talk about the gospel as if the word is synonymous with the message of salvation. And the message of salvation is a wonderful consequence of the gospel, it falls under the umbrella of the gospel. It is a result of the gospel. It's the fruit of the gospel. But the gospel is in, in, in its most reduced form that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah promised from the Old Testament. That's the gospel that Paul preaches. That's how Jesus describes himself. And so um, I think a lot of times we want to reduce it to the gospel of salvation. And to reduce that even further, we, we call it the gospel of how one becomes saved and goes to heaven. And in so doing, we take the wealth of biblical information about this incredible idea, the gospel or salvation, either one, and we truncate it, or we look at it with blinders on, and we become very myopic. We can only see one small sliver of the truth of what salvation is or what the gospel is, and we look at it as if salvation is going to heaven, escaping hell. And we can do this for a long time because that's true. It's just wonderfully incomplete. Now, Paul is in just a, a few short verses 
going to expand the picture of salvation. And, and that's why, one of the reasons I think this is an ancient creed. This is a, a statement that people memorize in the churches, they rehearse to one another, and it's, it's a symbol of membership. He says it's so much more than that. And we could all stand, uh, you know, I, I might have a reputation for enjoying the, the task of making things more complicated than they have to be. And I am sorry when I actually do that. But Paul does it here for me. So what we're going to do is we're going to expand salvation to, to see what it is he wants us to know about it. First of all, he wants us to know the need for it. He wants us to know the need. So this is verse 3. He says, for, and anywhere where I circle one of those words, those are connecting words, so it's, it's joining two clauses or sentences or verses together, but it really helps us kind of follow the flow of a Pauline argument. For, so based on all the things I've asked you to do, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Um, for those of you that can recall um, vividly your life before you met Jesus, this is likely, unless you're just really nice, which those of you who know me knows that that's not true. So this seems alarmingly accurate to what life without the Spirit is, to what life without Jesus is. He says, we, we don't do those, or we live this way because we once lived a different way. You'll see later on, he's gonna talk about we live in a way that is alive because we were once dead. Now look at all the things that our sinfulness, our our. our, our dead in our trespasses and our sins. Look at what this life produces. He calls us foolish. Sin lies, which is so contrary. And this is just basic logic, right? It's so contrary to truthful things. Paul is setting up a stark contrast between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. He said the way of the world is a way bent on lies, it's disobedient. It's rebellious. It wants nothing to do with holiness. Now, I really wonder if Paul is setting up all of these comparisons because he wants to make sure that we feel, or that Titus at least, feels okay calling people to a certain ethic. He says there's a mark that you need to hit. You don't need to feel guilty that you're asking people to do something that's hard or difficult or foreign to them or something they don't like. But it just says the truth has nothing to do with lies. Holiness has nothing to do with disobedience. We were led astray. Sin binds us because we were slaves to various passions and pleasures, which is uh, quite the opposite of the freedom that Paul describes in Galatians, 5, in Galatians 5. We were passing our days in malice. We enjoyed hurting people instead of doing good to them. In envy, we worshiped things that weren't worthy of worship. We, hate, we were hated by others. And we hated one another, which is just runs totally against a love ethic. Um, I'm going I'm to read quickly uh, a few verses from John 13. Just to remember what Jesus says about this. It says in John 13, 34, this is Jesus as he is starting to go into some of his most beautiful words in John, chapters 14 through 17, where he starts to have private moments with the apostles and it ends with this high priestly prayer where he prays over them and I believe prays for us as well. But right before that, in chapter 13, verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you, are also, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, if this seems overly simplified, I think Paul, if he were here, 
would say, yeah, it is. It's actually quite simple. We don't do these things. We used to do these things. These things were natural to us. But when you've been supernaturally transformed, they become foreign to you, or at least they should. So, what is the need for salvation? The need is our sin makes us guilty and binds us as slaves. That's why we need salvation. And then Paul gives one of those wonderful conjunctions. But. Paul, he he takes great delight, I think, in contrasting our previous life with the one that we have now to prove the point that maybe we need to live more into the one that we have now. But when the goodness and loving kindness, I'm gonna read this all as one sentence because this is how Paul wrote it. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Very, very dense and incredibly rich. And he is saying so many things. And I wonder if his intent isn't to overwhelm you. When the goodness and loving kindness of our God, the next thing he answers is, what's the source of our salvation? It's that God is that good. You see why it's actually hard to look at Paul and, and accuse him of being a legalist. He has no interest in you doing things for achievement or for merit. He says, your salvation wasn't up to you. I'm still going to call you to a higher ethic, but it's not up to you. It's, it's not that your good works produce this. It's that this produces your good works. And Paul, I think the implicit argument in all of this is that he would say, and if I don't see the good works, that is clue number one that I should doubt whether or not this is even there. Nothing in this list is optional, according to Paul. What is the source of salvation? The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior. And when he calls him the Savior, he's he's clearly asking you to think of the sacrificial Son of God coming. And then verse 5, he saved us. Not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. What are the grounds for salvation or the ground for salvation God's mercy. Demonstrated in the blood of Christ and his broken body on the cross. And what's the means of salvation? It is the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Um Paul, I don't believe, is arguing for baptismal regeneration here, that the Holy Spirit only comes at baptism. Uh, Rather, uh, if you kind of look at how he strings them together, it's like he says they're the same thing, the washing of regeneration. And so washing, he's, he's he's hinting at baptism. He's linking them. The Bible really never separates them. So even the question, when does this stuff happen? How long can I wait? It's a difficult question to answer because the Bible never really cares about it. It's like, you go, oh, you confess Jesus? Sounds great. There's a puddle. Let's get baptized. It's just, it happens, right? 
But he says that the means of our salvation is the washing of regeneration and the renewal that we find in the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to reduce that down to Holy Spirit. The new life available in him. Um, you'll see in a second when Paul starts to talk about justification. But what he, what he wants Titus to catch when he talks about regeneration and renewal from the Holy Spirit is he wants you to know that this righteousness that I'm calling you and your church in Crete to, this goodness, this gentleness, this ability to submit to things even if they aren't good, you have the supernatural ability to do this. And I wrote just right above that that this is an enabled righteousness. A righteousness that you are all of a sudden capable of. You weren't whenever you were dead, whenever you hated things and lied about things and were vicious. But with the life that you find in Christ, you now have this ability. He puts it another way in 2 Corinthians 5. Haven't had this Bible very long, still sticks. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16, Paul says this. From now on, this is, this is what he does. He goes, hey, you remember when? Now let me tell you about this now. From now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Now, the rest of that paragraph is wonderful and well worth your time to go back and read, but I want to go grab Ezekiel 36 and see where is Paul getting this language? Ezekiel 36 Um, I'm not going to start in the middle of the paragraph because it's too good. I'm going to start in verse 22 of Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations to which you came. Again, this idea that there's nothing that merits God's favor. There is nothing that brings his goodness to us in some sort of merciful form that we can do. You find out how to plumb the depths of God's mind and figure out how he decides to be good to people who, who are terrible to him. Let me know. But it just says that that's what he does. In verse 23, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Um, this is one of many, many passages where God says that the distinctive nature of how his people worship him and love him and act around one another and live holy and righteous lives is valuable as a conscience to the world, as a way that testifies to who he is. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And this is the best part. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We don't ever really trot this verse out whenever we say we shouldn't be too legalistic. And for the record, um, I, I don't know that I've ever met a legalist. My, my long-running joke is that Morgan Weiss is the closest thing I've ever found, but I have never actually met a legalist and anybody who is all that good. So maybe we should not get all bent out of shape about asking people to 
to live this way, to walk in the Lord's statutes and to carefully obey his rules. This is this and other passages like it are where Paul is, is pulling these ideas that, that God has regenerated. He has made new the hearts of his people. Um, There's a famous preacher from the the late 300s, early 400s. He died in like 407 AD. His name was John Chrysostom. He was a, his his nickname was John the Golden-Tongued. So think of like a really ancient Drew Moss, just really poetic and easy to listen to. Um, Everybody loves whatever he says. It's just golden because Drew said it. That was John Chrysostom. And, and he had this wonderful line where he, um, he said uh, over and over and over, God has not repaired us. He's made us new. And it was just so simple and pithy and proverbial, but wonderfully rich. It's like we didn't patch up some old leaky vessel. We didn't get a wrecked car with a bent frame to kind of hound dog down the road again. We... This is altogether new because we've been regenerated and we've been renewed with the, the Lord's very spirit that he promised way back in Ezekiel 36 and actually promised long before that in Deuteronomy, um, I want to say 27, 28 in there, in the section if you look at, the, uh, at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim where they're, they're shouting the blessings and the curses back and forth at each other and the reward for one of the blessings for obedience, for following God as you go into the promised land is that he will one day give you his spirit. And right here, Paul says, that's actually how salvation comes. The regeneration of the Holy Spirit and the renewal that comes. Verse six, so carrying on the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The one who sent the Spirit, the one who said, um, when people are getting, when his closest followers are getting a little alarmed that he'll leave soon. That he keeps saying these creepy things like I'm going to go die in just a couple of days and you guys just need to learn to be okay with that. You know, Jesus was at times towards the end a little difficult to stomach um, because he was, it's like he was on a death march. Um, and he said, no, like it's better that I go because I'll send the counselor. No one believes him when he says that, but it, it proves true. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay, why? So that being justified by his grace, and justified is a wonderfully important term, it is, is the idea that we have been made right in God's presence. The idea that we stand depraved and condemned and rightfully objects of his wrath and then whenever we are justified by the mercy of Christ's sacrificial atonement on the cross, he absorbed the wrath. God doesn't divert his wrath. He doesn't ignore the sin problem. He doesn't forget the sin problem. He deals with it. He pummels Jesus to death with it. And he says because he's done that, that we stand justified by his grace. And to be justified before Christ or before the Father means that we stand now innocent in court. If you go and read Revelation chapter 12, when Satan is cast out of heaven, I think our natural uh, conclusion to, to think about that idea when did Satan have to leave heaven? Um, I always just kind of assumed, well, he had to leave in order to go, you know, slither up to Eve and cause that problem. And he had to go down and torment Job. But he was cast out in Revelation 12 at the incarnation of Christ, at the sacrifice of Christ. Because when Jesus absorbs all the wrath of God himself, all the anger and fury that God has against the things that destroy the things he loves, which would be sin, destroying the the image bearers that he loves, when in his fury he destroys that by punishing Jesus, killing Jesus, the only thing Satan was allowed to do at that point was to go into heaven and accuse us what he did with Job first few chapters 
But when Jesus absorbs all that wrath, Satan can't accuse us of anything. And Revelation 12 says it was at that point that the, the, the dragon and, the, and all his hosts of demons were cast down, thrown down to the earth. You have no more business in God's throne room. You can no longer accuse God's people because they've been justified, which means that they have been declared righteous. It's the great exchange on the cross. Another thing that we talk about in, I won't write it up there, but whenever in our membership class is talking about the idea of original sin or inherited guilt from Adam. It's a, it's a, logical, a logically frustrating idea. You mean to tell me that I am born guilty because one guy messed it up. I got to pay for his problem. And my answer is always, yes. And then my follow-up is, I can't quite explain it. And then my conclusion is, I'm really glad, however, God works like that. Because he gives me all the blame for someone else's mistake. And by the way, there's plenty of blame to go around for my own mistakes. So let's not assume that we could even wiggle our way out of that. But because that's God's economy, he also gives me the righteousness of one man. Gives it to all of us. I'm glad he can take one and divvy it out for everyone. He takes the guilt of one and everyone is guilty. He also takes the righteousness of one and everyone is righteous should they confess his name. Don't know how it works. I'm just glad it works that way. And then he takes the collective guilt of the world and slams it on one man's shoulders and then kills him for it. And Paul says all of that in just the word justified. So we no longer have the guilt of Adam. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ. The positional righteousness that says we are now innocent before God. Though we still struggle with sin, that's where the Spirit comes in because that's where we have an enabled righteousness. You could call it actual righteousness and, um, and potential righteousness. You just call it justification and sanctification. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If the means of salvation is the regeneration found in the Holy Spirit, the result is that we are heirs. And I'll say it how Romans says it, we are co-heirs with Christ. According to the hope of eternal life, we have inherited true life. Paul wants Titus to go back to the church in Crete and to preach the idea that everything in verse 3 is wicked and dark and depraved. But for those who used to live like that but now have the beautiful gift of salvation that comes as a result of the gospel that Jesus is who he said he was, we now no longer have to live like that. We're co-heirs with Christ. Transformed from the heart out to actually live the life that God has asked us to do. And then he says, this is, this is where he comments back on the creed, I believe. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. We're still scared of legalism. I want you to insist, to demand them. I don't think that we need to go and be the morality police. I really don't. But in our, in our relationships inside the church, um, we have a responsibility to one another to, to look at the righteousness you have because of your justification and beg one another to live a life that aligns with that. And so I don't owe that, I don't owe that to, to, to every single person. But I owe it to a large degree to my wife. To a, a very large degree to my kids. 
I have a, one, I have a very big responsibility to my life group to various classes that I teach, to, to close friends, to people that I have very close relationships to. I have a more of a passive responsibility to others. But it's worth all of our time to think about who are those that are closest to us, with, with whom we have the most credibility, those that we're responsible for, spouses, children, friends, life group members, Sunday school classes, and say, where am I confusing passivity with love? And where is passivity actually maybe more of a hateful thing? Enabling. Because we don't look down on one another when we need to challenge one another. We come and we say, hey, like you remember what happened, right? Like you're justified. Like God made you new. I'm not asking you to do something you can't do. You have the Spirit. Can I remind you? This is how Christians talk to one another. Because this is, all of this wonderful theology is supposed to produce something. He says, I want you to insist on these things. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Incredibly simple. And I think that the good works are the evidence of salvation. Why do we need salvation? Because we're, we were once depraved. And where does salvation come from? It comes from the goodness of God. And on what is it based? It's based on his mercy we find in Jesus. And well, how does it come? Well, through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. What does it produce? It produces the, 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 the inheritance we have with the new life in Christ. And then, okay, well, what's the evidence that you actually have it? You do good works. This isn't the only place that even all of these ideas are listed together. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you'll find almost all of them there. You'll find Paul continue in this uh, spectacular um, uh, discourse on salvation, what it means and what it produces as you keep reading through Ephesians 3. And then he goes into Ephesians 4 and says, and therefore, this is how you live. And in Ephesians 5, and this is how you work. This is how you do marriage. This is how you parent. And on and on and on he goes. He says the gospel has so many implications. And one of the gifts of the gospel is salvation. And one of the things that salvation produces is those who live like Jesus did. The evidence that we have all this, this salvation that Paul describes is the fact that we do the good works that he talks about in verses 1 and 2. Now, we can still struggle with this. Um, John, I'll read you just a quick uh, verse out of John 14. John 14, verse 6, can be difficult when Jesus says something so exclusive as, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It seems rigid seems exclusive. It seems like it dismisses a certain population of the world. And it seems that way because it does. And it is exclusive. And it is rigid. And, and it's a verse that causes many controversies. When we want to take the, the, the doctrine of, of Christ's love and pit it against the idea that his love actually produces um, a certain lifestyle, a certain ethic. And we say that he is so loving that one doesn't really have to pursue holiness but can live in sin. Now, if you run that logic to its natural extreme, he is so loving that you don't even have to pay him any respects whatsoever. And he is so okay with sin and with falling short of the mark that you never even really have to confess his name. He'll be that loving in the end because after all, God wills that every man would be saved, right? Right? One pastor, and this is cited as a bad example, one pastor 
um, says this, says that John 14, 6 is a club with which we beat others over the head. She continues, what I encourage people to do is to look at the broader themes of the Bible. And what we see is a God who loved the world, a God whose intention is that all creation be made whole and healed. And that is true. Watch how you can take truth and spin it. A lot of people kind of had a gut feeling that their God was a more loving God and a bigger God than they had imagined and were yearning to have their large and loving view of God validated. And I think that's what happened. And later on it says that um, maybe one of the reasons that she thinks that way is because um, though she was a, a minister, um, she married a, a Hindu man and just couldn't fathom God having um, much frustration over him at all because he's so loving. I just don't know what you do with all of this theology, though. Who gets into heaven? It's not those who do good works. It is those who, because all of this is true in their life, do good works. You see how that subtle difference, it's a world of difference. Then he starts to compare um, that, th this idea with certain problems in the church. These things, uh, things I just discussed, the good works that come as a result of all of, this, uh, all of this doctrine that is built around the idea of salvation and who we are now in Christ, these things are excellent and they're profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies. Another word for that would be speculations, which he's, you, you can go and see Paul's words in 1 Timothy 1, the first uh, few paragraphs of that. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. All of that, even without knowing all the background of, uh, of the church in Crete, just smells of a lot of the, the Judaism that was still trying to overwhelm the, the, the gospel in these churches that Paul was associated with. And while the things back in verses 4 through 8 were excellent and profitable, these things that Titus must avoid are unprofitable and worthless. And as for a person who stirs up division which sounds an awful lot like someone from verse 3 who is foolish, disobedient, a slave to passions and pleasures, who spends their day in malice and is envious and hates others, and that's okay because others hate him too. That person stirs up division. Warn him once and then twice and have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You stir up the division by living out verse 3. It just doesn't sound anything like verse 2, where you don't speak evil of people. You're not quarrelsome. You're just gentle and incredibly courteous. You'll find a, a, a theme running through many of Paul's letters is, he just, he longs for unity. He loves the church to be unified. But when one stirs up division, warn him once, warn him twice, and then have nothing to do with him. There's no indication whether or not this is a, a social ostracizing or whether or not it's formal excommunication by the eldership. But it, it is clear that Paul both insists that we live a dutiful, ethical life that is based on the teachings of Christ because of the work of Christ in our lives. And it is also quite clear that he is okay that we insist that one another do the same and that it seems that he's quite okay with there are consequences for not doing so. He ends the letter 
with his, his typical greetings. He says, when I send Artemis, whom we don't have any record of, we don't know who that guy is, or Tychicus, who is a great associate of Paul, who he speaks fondly of in both Ephesians and Colossians, and uh, I believe he's mentioned in Acts. I didn't go check on that, but I think he is. When I send them to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Paul wants to see his good friend Titus, and he is replacing him with two other church leaders that will, that will ideally do all of these things as Titus is spending time with Paul. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer who would have been a, a lawyer of Roman law, unlikely to have been Jewish law. Um, and Apollos, who, who may have actually been the, the famous Apollos, the, the one who knew, who knew Scripture so well from the New Testament. Send them on their way. See that they lack nothing. This, this indicates that they were likely those who carried the letter to, him, to, to Titus on Crete. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Paul won't give it up, will he? Why? So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. He says we do good works, at least here, because we need to be compassionate for those who need help, and because life, uh, those who have the spirit, who have been regenerated, who have experienced the renewal described earlier, they, they produce fruit. It's as simple as living things grow, dead things don't. Living things grow. All who are with me send their greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul's uh, typical sign-off. So, in conclusion, um, what if we're not actually Pharisees? whenever we ask people to do good works. We ask them to live lives of holiness and righteousness. What if we're not Pharisees or the morality police or any of that? What if we're just new creations asking other new creations to live like it? It could be that simple, and I think that it's, it's incredibly loving to do so. One interesting little tidbit is to go back up to verse four and ask the question, when the goodness and loving kindness of, our God, uh, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. What does the goodness and loving kindness actually look like? Anybody else meet God on the road to Damascus? I would bet that likely most people in here met the goodness and loving kindness of God through the good works of his people that already knew him. How do you find salvation? It is usually through the Spirit of God speaking the words of God through the people of God as they are obedient to do good works. Paul doesn't let us compartmentalize these ideas. He says they're one big hairball. Please don't try to pull it apart. Is it grace? Or do we do good works? We do both. Is it doctrine or is it practice? Yes, both. What if we've been transformed into saints? It seems very reasonable that we would then ask people to live like they're saints. Okay? Let me pray for us. God, you, perhaps you alone know how much I love a room full of saints. And you alone know the hearts of every saint in this room. God, we are so outrageously grateful for you, for your spirit. for the servant we meet in your son and for the work that the entire Godhead has done in the hearts of humanity. Teach us to love you 
by listening to you. And teach us to love one another by asking that we all listen to you. Continue to testify to your goodness and to your instructions through the word, through prayer and the spirit, and through the people of God. We love you, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Sunday. If you are normally a 9.30 person, I would highly recommend you consider the 8 o'clock, which we do on Easter. We add that first service early. 9.30 is a little busy in here on Easter Sunday. So, we will see you guys on Resurrection Sunday.